Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, March 26th. Last June, former U.S. President Donald Trump began using racist language to describe the novel coronavirus that by that point had already killed half a million people. There's never been anything where they have so many names. I could give you 19 or 20 names for that, right? It's got all different names. Wuhan. Wuhan was catching on. Coronavirus, right? Kung flu. Soon, hate crimes against Asian Americans began to rise. Racism in the time of pandemic. A young woman wearing a mask is attacked in a subway station. Come here. Sanitize your Come here. An elderly woman is chased by a bully trying to squirt hand sanitizer on her. The Thai man in San Francisco, who had just gotten his COVID-19 vaccine, had just celebrated his birthday, a father or grandfather, walking on the sidewalk in broad daylight when a surveillance camera captured his attacker crossing the street, shoving him to the ground. He never regained consciousness. During 2020, reported attacks against Asian Americans were up more than 150% in the United States. Many others went unreported. And the world looked on in horror last week as the attacks against Asian Americans escalated, when a lone shooter killed eight people in Atlanta, Georgia, including seven Asian Americans, six of whom were women. But anti-Asian sentiment is not new. In the U.S., it goes back to the 1800s when Chinese laborers first arrived to work on the railroads and in the coal mines. Official government policy at the time systematically discriminated against Asians. And this is not an issue limited to the United States. Around the world, Asians face overt and covert discrimination. Over the last few months, Asian fashion industry professionals have been organizing, speaking up, raising money and awareness about this urgent problem. And they have been sharing painful experiences of discrimination within the inner workings of fashion. This week on the BOF podcast, I spoke to three leaders from the fashion industry, the designer, Philip Lim, the editor-in-chief of Allure magazine, Michelle Lee, and the journalist, Susanna Lau, to listen to their personal stories, learn from their experiences, and understand how we can be better allies in the fight against Asian hate. 
First, I asked each of them to share their personal family histories and ties to Asian culture. This is Michelle Lee. It's funny because recently I feel like I learned that I hardly ever have talked about this. And so I've been asked this question so much more in the past like month or so. And I realized that I had to actually explore some of it too, because it's a question that's been so rarely asked of us. So I'm, I'm second generation Chinese American. Um, my dad was born in China and came here when he was in middle school. My mom is also Chinese. Um, but she was born here, uh, mostly raised in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So I grew up uh, mostly in Connecticut in pretty much an all white town. Um, we were the only East Asian family and the only other Asian family in town was my best friend who's Indian. And so I faced a lot of racism growing up, um, especially in middle school. I was absolutely tormented by kids. And so um, when I was 16, we moved to South Florida, where suddenly there was a lot of diversity. Um, about half of my class was either Black or Latino, but I was still one of the only Asians. Um, when I graduated college, I moved to New York City, started working in media, still one of the only Asians. So I feel like in my entire life, I've, I've been sort of used to being the only one or one of the only. And so especially when I was younger, I feel like my, um, my tactic, I guess, was assimilation. And so it's a lot of what we were taught, but a lot of, I guess, that I saw too. I really didn't understand Chinese culture besides what I saw in my family. Um, so it really wasn't until, you know, really later in adulthood where I started to realize that being seen as the other was something that I could actually use to fuel what I did. And so I've started to really use that just in who I am as an editor and also what we do at Allure just with diversity and representation. But I remember really vividly, um, you know, seeing this wave of Asians in fashion when I saw Philip and Prabal and Jason and then also creators like Susie and Ami and Chriselle and everything. And I have to say, thinking back, I think it was the first industry where I saw really visible Asians in, in a mass group. And so I've, I've always been really thankful to that. Okay. Thank you, Michelle. Susie, why don't we start with you uh, next? So I was born in London, raised in London. I've never lived anywhere else. My parents are from Hong Kong. Um, so I'm second generation uh, Hong Kong Chinese. And uh, I grew up above a takeaway. A lot of um, obviously Chinese immigrants uh, operated Chinese takeaways in, in the UK. So I was always actually really super connected with my culture. My mother tongue was in fact Cantonese, not English. I remember going to like nursery and not being able to ask where the loo was. I was always taught to be actually super connected with my culture, but even in a city like London, uh, which is incredibly diverse, and I've always gone to school in very like mixed environments, you're still made aware of your otherness because everyone's aware of their otherness. And so it projects itself in a kind of slightly different way where um, it's much more like compartmentalized and like each group has their own thing going on. And it's like, it's not necessarily that kind of like harmonious mix that like politicians like to say that it is about cities. And then when I uh, graduated from uni, also in London, went to UCL and started my blog, the self-publishing aspect for me was actually now that I look back at it, like a way of maybe doing something for myself because I didn't necessarily see myself in mainstream fashion media. So it manifested itself in this kind of bedroom blogging mentality where I could express myself freely and, you know, not necessarily open myself up for actually grappling and going into the industry uh, the more traditional way. And then kind of going through the rungs of uh, fashion, you kind of discover that you have to grapple with a, a few things really. A, classism, and B, also like, you know, the differentiation, your differences are made aware to you constantly in covert and overt ways. And for me, I think, I would say like maybe the last three years has given me more courage to take ownership of my culture because I have seen in fashion that 
the Western centric view is not necessarily the only view. You can see that creativity is coming, is globalized. Fashion is a globalized place. And I think seeing going to China more or going to Asia more has has really like opened my eyes in terms of we actually can have authorship and ownership of our culture. So that has been like, I think kind of my mission online in terms of um, projecting that and promoting that. Okay, thanks Susie. Philip, what's your personal story and heritage? Thank you, Emron. Hi everybody. You guys, Michelle and Susie, it's crazy because I've never heard your stories and we're friends, you know what I mean? So I commend you and God, it's gonna be a tearjerker today, right? Um, I commend you for sharing your stories. It's truly beautiful. Like Susie and Michelle, you know, it's um, we have different stories. And uh, my story is this. Um, my parents uh, and their parents uh, are from uh, mainland China. Uh, during the Cultural Revolution, they left and they um, settled in Cambodia. And they lived there, operated their business and whatnot until um, 74, 75, the, the Cambodian genocide. And they were fortunate enough to uh, escape that. My father, my mother was telling me, you know, um, my, fa- my father was, uh, they lived on the coastline. And when uh, the arrival of the guerrilla troops happened in the dark of night with six children, they had a boat and they brought uh, with them a neighbor who, who was a fisherman to hop on this boat and drive it along the coast to Thailand or else it would all been over. So they settled in Thailand for about, uh, for a bit. They were sponsored by um, a Christian organization, settled in Southern California, um, San Diego, and then we ended up in Orange County. And you know, when you settle there, my mother also tells me, she rarely tells me about the past because you, none of you can imagine having to escape a revolution and also flee a genocide. And Landing in the States, uh, you put into a home without understanding the language and just fending for yourself. So uh, we grew up in Southern California, Orange County. Immediately, my parents are like, okay, assimilate. You know, we brought you here to have a future. So that's what we did. You know, we, we obeyed our parents, respectful um, children, the cultures about respect, did that head down. I was fortunate enough also to be in... Um, a community uh, that was uh, a, a, a spectrum of the Asian diaspora, the Thai community, the Cambodian community, the Vietnamese community, the Latin community, we're all kind of commingling. And I look back now, we're commingling, but there was a bunch, uh, uh, such a, a, a huge presence of classism, um, colorism, you know, all vying for that one little small space to survive and to become American. I grew up in uh, playing sports. You know, I remember my father, he was, he was so different. And I look back and I, I get a lot of that from him, the eccentricity. And uh, he would come, I would play, I, would, I was in a varsity tennis team. He would, and he would come and pick me up in his uh, lowered car, big giant rims, chiffon polka dot shirts, gold everywhere, kind of like me today. Um, and I would always remember being, why can't you just have a station wagon? and just be like everybody else. You know, uh, my mother was a full-time seamstress because that's what she knew how to do. And that was, uh, she didn't speak English. So it was her way of functioning to put food on the table. And that's how we grew up, you know, through the whole struggle of everything. um, I was expected to be a business person, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, the whole cliche trajectory. But I figured that um, it wasn't, that path wasn't for me and I, struck out on my own to uh, explore um, fashion. That broke my mother's heart because to her, fashion is not fashion. Fashion is mi- like below minimum wage in a factory, uh, 15 hours a day, getting paid pennies to put food on the table. So when I said to her, I want to go in fashion, she looked at me and she said, I, we brought you here to America to, for what? for that people can look down on you like they look down on me with to not have a voice because again her association with fashion was a factory worker putting these goods together we you know that that broke my heart and you know stuck my head uh, down did the work not 
ever recalling seeing any other Asians in fashion because you know I, I, I was just doing something I loved and it took me places. I remember even when I came to New York and I started 3-1 Philip Lim with my, uh, my incredible partner, Wen Zhao, she asked me, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I just want to make clothes because I think I'm good at that and I love it. And I love it because I learned that making clothes for my mother was a sign of respect, a way of love, a way to nurture. But she's like, what do you want to call it? We call it Philip Lim. I'm like, no, I don't want to call it Philip Lim. Let's put a uh, something behind in front of it so I can disguise the name because it won't be accepted. You know, I knew early on that that would not a name like Philip Lim would be like, is that food? Is that some sort of service industry? Is that packaging? So I, I hit it subconsciously. So it's like, you know, three, one Philip Lim. People ask me today, what is that? I'm like, it's a fashion company. And I look back now, I'm like, I want to remove the three one because I just wanted to be Philip Lim because I'm so proud now. But uh, this is how I grew up. And um, this is where we are today. Okay. Thank you all for sharing those stories. You know, a common theme across all of your stories was this need to navigate between, you know, your culture and the expectations of your families and this pressure to assimilate and almost erase or hide your culture in order to be accepted. And it strikes me that one of the reasons that so many Asians, you know, I would include South Asians in this as well, is that there's this pressure to do certain types of careers as immigrants, right? Or sons and daughters of immigrants. You want to do the right job. And fashion is always seen as this kind of superficial, non-legitimate career path. So you have to navigate that, which is like the, the, your community, your, your parents, your families, the extended communities around you don't necessarily see fashion as a legitimate career. In fact, in your case, Philip, you say it was seen as something that was looked down upon. On the other hand, to make it in the industry, you kind of have to downplay or minimize your Asian-ness, you know, in order to be accepted. So over the last few weeks, as this terrible series of attacks has been playing out, how have things changed in terms of the way the Asian community is feeling in this last month, right? Because all of a sudden we see this everywhere. AAPI as an acronym is something that's, you know, maybe many people weren't even familiar with before all of this happened. What, what is the feeling of the community now and what's different about this moment than this long history of anti-Asian sentiment. Why is this movement taking, taking place now? I think the most uh, immediate difference is the visceral nature of the images and videos that, that have emerged purely because of social media, the, the swiftness of everything, and because the concentration of crimes was so acute. It has been so acute and it, you know even if they happened before which they did you know we all collectively and I've been sharing with so many different groups in my dms in my whatsapp groups in clubhouse every on all these different platforms everyone had these has these stories like pertaining back to their past but they were sporadic and they were always like, because they were sporadic, you would bury them. And then like, they would come up again, but then you would bury them again. And then the cycle repeats itself. But then this year, and particularly amongst Asian diaspora in the States and in Europe as well, where there are you know, sizable communities of Asians, we've got the facilities to see it for ourselves and be confronted by it. And you cannot, you can't possibly not be like moved by it and dig deep into yourself to ask yourself why this is happening now. And, and you know, what have you done or have you been complicit in a part of that process? Like, it's just, I, everyone that I've spoken to has had this reaction and it is truly collective. 
I totally agree with Susie about the visceral nature of seeing some of the photos and the videos and everything. And I also think that in the past couple of years, we as a community have come together a lot more. So I think we're all sharing our stories. And when we see something, we're, we're passing it along. So there is sort of this community conversation happening already. Um, but I think especially in the States, you know, I think everyone has to remember for the past five years, essentially, we've been living in this political powder keg, basically, of where... I wrote my first editor's letter after Trump was inaugurated about racism and about how I was really scared because I did see this rise back then of, of Asian hate. And so now fast forward to where the pandemic starts and then we've got you know the China virus and Kung flu and everything. I think we've all been talking about it for a long time now that we were nervous about this happening. So I think then when it started to actually manifest itself as actual violent attacks, it's like our worst nightmare come true. And so I think Atlanta, for me at least, was it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Like I read that and I just broke down in tears. And so a lot of people who I've talked to have felt that same way, that it's like we've been sort of holding in this anger and frustration and fear. And suddenly um, by seeing and, and hearing about these events, it's just caused this like massive, just like break in a lot of us. Also, we, we have to remember that each community is its own experience. We cannot compare one community to the other. We cannot like uplift one by dragging the next one down. Every community has their own time to become. And this is our time right now to become because you think about uh, generationally too, we're in that generation. I'm first generation, Michelle's second generation. Susie's like second generation, first generation, right? Second, so our parents came here to make a life to survive, to do the hard work, to grind, to give us a life. And we're in a generation now that's so pivotal, pivotal because a lot of people do not know the Asian history, Asian American history, Asian history period, because it's not taught in schools. It's erased um, from American history. It's separated. It's like Asian American history and American history is separated, but it's one history. So it's not taught there. And so, this goes back to um, our generation right now being pivotal and why representation matters too. Because I guarantee you a lot of us, when we see each other, when we know each other exists, we allow and we give and provide permission for each other to speak up. And you're seeing this more and more across all industries, across all ethnicities. We're not a monolith. We represent uh, the category Asian is more than... 40 different countries, more than 350 languages different spoken, you know? And it, it's, but we're, we're, we're realizing that and we understand that our generation has to stop it, change the narrative to ensure even a bigger, brighter, more confident place for the next generations to come. So I think that's what you're seeing too. And I've never felt so much unity and solidarity and openness to just reach out and not feel rejected. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really inspiring for me to see the Asian community come together over the past few weeks. I've been checking in on my Asian American friends in particular. And one of the topics that has come up in my own conversations has been a really high level of frustration, not just with you know Trump and Kung Flu and all of that, rhetoric over the last year, but also the reaction of the police uh, and the reaction of the media. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that because these were hate-driven attacks, but they have not been classified as hate crimes. And the media has not represented them as hate crimes. They have taken all different kinds of elements and given them much more priority in the narrative that they've been using, partially because the police themselves are saying, we cannot, we are not sure, we do not have evidence that these are hate crimes. Can you talk a bit about that? I mean, you know, Michelle you and, and Susie, you are both in the media. Frustration, for sure. Um, I think hate crime is difficult, though, because from a legal perspective, hate crime is a very specific thing to define. I think there's a difference though between, there's also this, this hesitance, I guess, to even call it racially motivated. And so when they're trying really hard to decouple it completely from race, 
that's when I think a lot of us get really frustrated. Um, when it comes to public sentiment, though, I think it all kind of boils down to whether or not the mainstream thinks that there's a group that's oppressed. And so ultimately, unfortunately for Asians, because of the model minority myth, people don't think that we're oppressed. And they think that racism against Asians doesn't exist because there's that stereotype of Asians as we just study really hard and we all want to go to Harvard and become doctors and lawyers. And that's certainly a percentage of Asians, but it's not everyone. And so what ends up happening is that you have this huge mass of Asians. It's like a gigantic culture who end up getting kind of erased from the story. And so, you know, it's really tricky too, because I think as a member of media, I've definitely been watching, um, you know, how it's been reported on and using Atlanta, I guess, as an example the way that local papers reported on the story versus how Korean papers did was vastly different. And so it's really highlighted a lot that representation in newsrooms is terrible. And so I also saw someone mention on Twitter too that in some of the newsrooms down there, um, they had editors who were telling Asian reporters that they didn't wanna put them on the story because they thought that they would be too biased. And so when we're getting so many just different stories and things not, not going right, it's really clear that something needs to change. I would say also from the UK perspective, you know, the UK media, when you say Asian here, what, what East Asian, the main uh, group that comes up is Chinese, like for, on, for instance, on our census forms, Chinese is like its own separate kind of category, um, uh, as opposed to Asians. And then the conflation of Chinese of, and China in the media is that they are affluent they are a growing superpower. So that it's like a conflation with um, the country and the, the economic growth that is going on there. And then a sort of like kind of a broad washing over the diaspora and the different communities that are here. So yes, it is a complete like, not deliberate, maybe not, well, maybe depending on what publication we're talking about, but definitely a subconscious minimizing of this problem because they don't see it as a problem because they are thinking, oh, Asian, Chinese, uh, crazy rich Asians, China as a super growing superpower. And, you know, it just becomes this sort of subconscious thread. And also there's a general distrust in law enforcement and the justice system in amongst Asian communities in general, because going back to this monolithic myth, even a lot of the, the attacks, if you notice, they're happening on, on Asian elderly and Asian women and certain uh, minorities within uh, the communities that really don't have the resources. Even if they were to report these crimes, there's a language barrier there. So even in the system too, there's, it's printed in Chinese and maybe Korean or Japanese, but what about Cambodian? What about Thai? What about Vietnamese? What about all the endless um, uh, languages are very different. So there's no way to even report this. And also hate crime is so complicated as Michelle says, it's like the federal uh, versus the local versus the local, it's all defined separately. And I think another point that I would love to make is like, because we don't understand it, because we, we have a history of treating Asian community as a monolith, there's no symbol, universal symbol to, to signify hate crime. For example, in the black community, you know, you saw in the Capitol attacks, there was hanging of a noose and immediately you understand what that is. In the Jewish community, swastikas, you understand where that comes from. In the Asian community, can we identify that? There is a lack of you know, so even taking it down to that level too. So I think this is the systemic perpetual problem. It, it just prevents anything from happening. And right now there is uh, in, in America through Congress uh, by um, Congresswoman Meng and um, Senator Hirono, they're trying to pass this COVID hate bill and trying to desperately uh, pass it so that, you know, we can identify and have legislation towards it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. The other thing I wanted to address with all of you is the intersectional elements of this topic, right? So when we talk about Asians as a monolithic group, not only do we have to address the fact that Philip has raised, which is like, there are many different types of Asians, right, from many different cultures. So that's one layer. Asians are also, from what I've been reading, have the biggest disparity between richest Asians and poorest Asians in many countries, right? And so when Susie talks about impressions that all Asians are, you know, wealthy and have, you know, people see dollar signs or euro signs or pound signs when they see Asians, that, you know, there's a, there's a layer of class here as well. And then there's a layer of gender and the role of women, especially with, in regards to these attacks that have happened in Georgia. Can you help us all understand how these kind of under, these intersectional issues help to contribute and exacerbate some of the issues that we've been discussing today? So I I think we've all probably thought a lot about this in the past week since since Atlanta. They are sort of conversations that I haven't really had widely with other people though in, you know, previously. So it's been really interesting to think about all of this. I think being an Asian woman, you know, we all sort of grow up with certain stereotypes around. And so just thinking about in my lifetime, you know, Asian women were pretty much non-existent in popular culture until, you know, somewhat recently. And so when we were presented, I feel like we were, there's like polar opposites. It's either that we're hypersexualized or we are presented as docile. And so it's such a dangerous stereotype because there's no gradient in between. And so when you think about just the misogyny and like the violence against women, you can understand how that happens with that stereotype, that it's like we're either presented as 
you know, sexual play things or we're seen as weak. And so who are you going to attack? It's like somehow we are made to be an easy target. We've started to see a lot of this in the pandemic too, because during the pandemic, I just saw an interesting stat that 68% of the attacks against Asians were against women. And so that is not hugely surprising being an Asian woman. I think class, as you mentioned, is, is a huge part of this as well. Like I mentioned before, with like the model minority when we think about Asians and like Asian Americans, let's say, people are thinking about, you know, the 1%. They're not thinking about the single mom who's working three jobs just to survive. You know, my, my mom's aunts and uncles ran a laundromat. My grandfather drove a taxi for many years. Think about the nail salon workers. Like a lot of these people, unfortunately, have been made to be invisible in our society and people don't really think twice about them. Definitely true. And, you know, just to reiterate that, one in four Asian elderly live below the national poverty line. One in four. And there's no resources for them because they don't speak the language. It's not available. And also here in New York City, too, uh, going back to the, the wealth gap and um, the, for years running consecutively, who has taken the number one ranking of the highest uh, poverty uh, uh, group amongst uh, racial groups. It's the Asians. No one knows that because they're like New York City and they see all this wealth being flaunted around. They only report on the 1% and, you know, a certain segment of the, the Asian demographic. But Asian youth, the number one ranking poverty rate years, year after year after year. And that's why organizations like Apex for Youth here in New York City, which Michelle and I are heavily involved in, is so important because we need to talk about these stories and shed light on them because it goes back to, no, Asians are fine. No one hates Asians. Asians are all rich. Asians are all good. Asians are all respectful. All this kind of uh, BS to be, as a matter of fact, you know? What happened in Atlanta was really like a perfect, almost like a perfect Venn diagram of classism, racism and misogyny overlapping they are so like interconnected and if that I've forgotten his name probably I don't even want to remember his name if he hadn't said that oh the you know the the, the shooter had a, a had a sex addiction actually that wouldn't have prompted the tidal wave of you know uh commentary about the fact that women, that the Asian women are thought of in this way and they are um, attacked because of, because of these stereotypes. And we forget the other stereotype, that tiger mom, either the bitch or the slave, nothing in between. And I don't know about you all, but all the Asian females I know, they're bosses. They're not bitches or slaves, you know, they're bosses. They're loving bosses. I want to turn the conversation a bit inward now and, and talk about how this manifests in the fashion industry. And as you said, Susie, at the beginning, racism isn't manifested only through overt actions or attacks like the one we've seen or like the ones we've seen over the last year. There are microaggressions. There are moments when Asian people in our industry are made to feel othered. They are made to feel like they shouldn't be there or that they should feel lucky to even be included, right? Can you talk a little bit about how anti-Asian sentiment in your experience and your observation manifests itself in the everyday workings of the fashion industry? So, I mean, up until I like when I was uh, starting out at the beginning, like actually I didn't I, 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 I didn't have to put myself through, you know, kind of any sort of aggression because I was just self-publishing and it, I was like uh, creating a bubble around me. But uh, it was only when I entered into the industry and started being you know kind of initiated into you know the system of going to shows going you know like dealing with big brands PR agencies uh, you know I felt definitely the automatic pressure a to be one of them and by them 
and in in the UK it is also tied to class you know to a hide my background where I came from like in terms of my parents being working class and then b minimizing my culture in order to fit in into what it is still a really kind of elitist place and it's populated by people from incredible backgrounds of privilege so whether I imposed that on myself or whether it was imposed on me it's still quite unclear somehow but because it's so continuous and so kind of impressed on you and maybe and it also applies to other kind of um minority groups I think entering into the fashion industry because you are made to feel like you should be so lucky to be there because it has traditionally been uh you know the people in power are largely white and male still uh you know it was definitely back when I started and it still is today so there's no getting away from it like you know wherever whatever angle your minority or background you're coming from Michelle you know you work at Condé Nast the most you know famous powerful elite publishing company in the industry which has recently had its own reckoning internally with race how do you experience or observe issues that we've been talking about in the context of fashion and in the context of fashion publishing well something susie said before of you know feeling like you're lucky to be there but not knowing if it's self imposed i i feel that so much because i think in my experience looking back like i have thought about in my entire career have i faced discrimination probably but i think that's why sometimes this type of casual racism is so insidious and it's because you don't know if it actually happened or if it, is it in your mind like was it related to race and so you know i think i've experienced probably like microaggressions like most asians have of being called the wrong name in a meeting like just because there's one other asian in the room or i you know conde nast is in the world trade center so i've been stopped a couple times because i have been accidentally confused for an asian tourist so i've been pointed to the tour- tourism uh, entrance i also i remember um when i first got hired at allure about five and a half years ago and someone had wrote that it was like the the luxury european automobile being replaced by the cheaper asian model and it's like these are just sort of like the everyday like racist things that happen and because we are made to think that we're lucky we should just be lucky to be here i think a lot of us have just glossed over those things and so because i've sort of like sat and thought about like what have thing what things have happened to me like when i'm actually going over everything in my head i'm like oh god that's like really messed up but when you're just in the moment sometimes i think we're moving so quickly that we just we don't even know um but when i think about how anti-asian sentiment manifests itself in fashion i think a lot about this word that like everyone's talking about now which is visibility and so a lot of asians are feeling like we're just not seen and so in fashion i think it is it's a lack of representation and that manifests in a lot of different ways whether it's models on the runway designers in stores it could be cover stars on magazines I actually did a Google search before this just to look at some magazines and let me tell you there are plenty of magazines out there who have not had one Asian on their cover in a long time and maybe they've had one since 2018 Allure has had eight and we've got two more coming in the near future and like these decisions don't happen by accident um it's not to say that we're only doing Asian covers like we've had a ton of diversity in a lot of senses but i think that until there are people who are in leadership positions and decision making positions those things don't happen and and michelle i think that's such an important point because on the one hand asians aren't well represented in positions of power in the industry whether that be on the design side or on the business side but the industry is constantly talking about Asians as customers the role of the chinese market and the obsession our industry has right now with the chinese customer and it sometimes occurs to me if we're so obsessed with chinese customers why don't we want the chinese perspective in our boardrooms you know why why is it about capturing the chinese dollar but not have, having the chinese point of view to help make some of the decisions 
It's a great question. <laughs> I mean, I literally, I think I've been thinking about this so much and only also because I go to, have been to China a lot in recent years and because they are becoming a, 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 a great creative force and not just China, Korea, you know, Japan has obviously always been an amazing creative force and, you know, globalization, just generally more designers that aren't like created in the fashion capitals. And behind the scenes as well, amazing stylists, photographers, you know, so I want to say Zonglin, Leslie Zang, you know, amazing creative people. And the thing, the problem, it's, you know, of course they are, China is a market and an important one. But I think in the industry and especially at like kind of senior exec levels at like, you know, French houses, Italian brands, to them it is, it is generally all one and the same and so it you know they they're not able to see like the creative contribution and the 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 fact that we can be creative and voices in the conversation rather than just fueling the business it's so true about creative forces too um going back to the question you were asking too and i would be remiss if i don't speak about this from the inside not just wanting to be a customer, but where it starts too. I came in this industry because I just wanted to design clothes. I didn't, early on, I didn't realize I'm going to come into this industry to check a box off, you know, because that doesn't exist. When you are just a creative person, this is what you pursue. You do that. You know, my love is design. And I realized um, early on when I came into the industry, I was passable but not universally marketable. I was made to feel that I'm lucky to be here, to hold a spot because it was that wave and even calling it a wave, you know what I mean? And even to this day when, we, when the industry says, oh, black designers, Asian designers, white designers, that's literally microaggression. That's literally systemic. That's used to this day and no one's calling it out. You know, um, I think I cannot, it's, it's, exoticizing, it's othering. I cannot tell you the countless, countless um, interviews, questions where, how does it feel to be Asian and in design? Do you design Asian clothes? Is red your favorite color? Do you employ dragon and phoenix motifs on your clothes? So tell me, how does it feel to be Asian and be able to design? Literally nonstop for years. And early on, you know, there wasn't these kind of conversations. So you just stomach them and you internalize it because you had to put it past you to get to the, uh, get to the point, right? To, to hold your space. And it's crazy the, the amount of wrong names. And the nail on the coffin for me is a couple of years ago at the CFDA awards. You know, I've, I've, I've won an, a men's award. I won a women's award. I won an accessories award in my own industry um, here in America. I was walking and my, uh, my date was Rupi. Uh, Rupi Kaur, you know, and I was so proud because, you know, from then on, for years now, if you look at the history of um, who I bring to the table, it's, it's non-white because I know we don't really have a seat at the table. And I was entering the CFDA ward on the ramp, going with everyone else, and we were dressed up. You know, this is not like, you know, we were jogging on a jog and decided to, let's pop in and have a drink, you know, and check out the awards. We're, we're dressed up. And then the usher, he's like, oh, sir, you should take this door. I'm like, but the red carpet's that way. And he goes, oh, he was kind. He was just ignorant, you know? Um, and he's like, go, you have to go this way. I'm like, no, sir. My name is Philip Lim, and I am part of the CFDA. And, you know, it was, it was shocking because I was more embarrassed for my date because we shouldn't have to go through these things, you know, in our own industry where we have claimed awards. And to this day, the amount of mistaken identity, it really fosters this imposter syndrome. You know, it plays into the role. And to this day, if you think about the major houses, do you see an Asian, Asian American lead? Not zero, zero. We are silently but surely being erased from uh, a design aspect, 100%. We just, again, we tick a box and we fill a quota. And that's a shame. If you're in a position of leadership in the industry, say you're the CEO of a brand or an editor-in-chief like Michelle is, 
what should leaders be doing to make their Asian employees feel more included, to feel a sense of belonging in the industry? Well, Philip just mentioned this idea of ticking off a box. So I think that's first and foremost is don't treat any of these issues as if it's just ticking off a box. Because I think as we saw this summer, there were definitely a lot of brands and companies that were willing to just sort of do one social media post and they were like, my activism is done for the year. And so we all know, obviously, that's not going to cut it. I think the other thing is, as a leader, it's taking the time to learn more about other people's cultures. And so, you know, there is just like a lot of not understanding things. So, for example, for people who are in decision-making positions um, with, with talent or casting, making sure that you understand some of the nuances, like, for example, colorism. Colorism is a big thing in Asian cultures, but a lot of non-Asian people aren't really fully aware of it. So you might have a social media campaign or an ad campaign or something that goes out and it's insensitive and it's just not good enough. And so when we don't have that representation on those higher levels, I think everyone on those top levels needs to make sure that they're like fully educated about things so that they can not only work with their employees better, but also anything that's outwardly facing too that goes out and they make sure is, is culturally sensitive. Michelle, can you go into the colorism point a little bit just for people who may be not familiar with how that is so you know widespread in the Asian community? Sure, yeah. I mean, colorism exists around the world. Um, it's certainly an issue in the Black community as well, but within the Asian community, I think at least in the States, when people say Asian, they think of East Asian. And they typically have an image of, you know, when you see women in magazines who are Asian, they're typically very tall, very thin, very fair-skinned. They've got Black hair like me. But as we know, as Philip said, like there are, I think, 48 countries that make up Asia. And that's it's a lot. We exist on such a wide spectrum that for people who work in advertising and media and other people who show people for literally since eternity, we tend to show Asianness through a very narrow lens. And it's a very Eurocentric lens of Asian beauty. And so I think it would behoove all of us because of colorism, um, which essentially in a lot of countries, um, in a lot of Asian cultures, being darker is a bad thing. And so, especially in Asia, whitening creams and lightening creams, which some of them are incredibly dangerous and toxic. Women are literally poisoning themselves and some men, uh, men and women are poisoning themselves to have lighter skin. And so when we are presenting just this very narrow view of Asian beauty, it, it hurts all of us. Okay, thank you. Susie, advice for leaders in the industry? I would say, I think it is really about trying to foster true diversity. So like diversity that isn't like a kind of corporate CSR exercise, but more like looking at like, and looking for talent um, across the board. Like, I don't know, I've always really, really truly believed in um, fashion being a, a kind of, you know, in the last 20 years, for sure, a globalized fashion industry so when we talk about kind of anti-Asian sentiment I think it really needs this and coupled with what happened last summer we really need to take all of those learnings and, and apply it to like kind of a more nuanced look at how we deal with diversity in companies in the designers that you feature in a magazine are you really like looking at the hopeful uh, talent breadth that's out there because it's definitely out there are they being heard okay. and philip lend us your microphone lend us your platform but don't speak for us let us speak for ourselves but just lend us your microphone lend us your platform there's a difference there you know don't post and that's it you know what i mean like give us the space to tell our stories you know, you see it all the time with appropriation and just like, you know, trying to um, go after uh, the Asian consumer, but no one in the room telling the story is Asian. You know, you have, you go to these fancy consultants and, and, and whatnot, and you're, you're, everything is about what, what, what does culture want right now? Culture wants to see its own kind. We are part of culture. We're not a niche culture. You know, and culture wants to hear its own stories. I get so many, um, even me saying Cambodian, even me saying Hmong, even me saying Vietnamese, it's like, hurrah, finally. And it's so simple. Yeah, 
it, it, that's all it is. And, you know, it, it goes back to representation and in your boardroom, you have to make sure that it looks like the representation that you're vying for. And Emron, the other day, you know, you, you, had, we, we, you had me on a chat and I was so grateful because I want to remind every brand or every person uh, in charge of our brand um, watching today, the days that your clothes are speaking for you is over, O-B-E-R, over. That consumer has left the building. You have to now encourage your brand to give a damn, to speak up, show your point of view, and I swear do it from the heart, and they will follow you. Your business will be better for it. And we're just talking about dollars and cents. You know, also, literally, just if you can, support your local Asian businesses, support grassroots organizations um, that are doing the hard work. You know, if you, uh, the education, the awareness, the legislation, and if you can, donate. This is the biggest um, centralized platform right now that we've developed to really um, help raise awareness, funding for all these victims of these AAPI hate crimes. And it's really Stop Asian Hate and it's gofundme.com backslash AAPI. And uh, this date, it's been the largest uh, uh, fundraising for um, this movement. And it's the whole point is it has to continue and not become a moment. And just to add to that, you know, a lot of brands have posted that, you know, something, but haven't done the donation. And it's interesting that, you know, they want to, obviously, that is purely performative. We've all learned a lot from you today. I'm so grateful for your perspectives. I've learned a lot, you know, talking to all of you. And I think your your point, Susie, that this is shouldn't be something that happens and is discussed now just because it's in the in the media. This is a topic we as an industry need to continue to address. And similar to what we saw with the Black Lives Matter movement back in June, a lot of talk, not a lot of action. You know, as an industry, I believe, unless we start taking these issues seriously, not just as kind of PR risk management exercises or looking like we want to be part of a conversation that we don't really understand. There's, a, there's still clearly a lot more that our industry needs to do to be truly inclusive, truly representative, and truly making people feel like they belong and have a deserved place at the table so we don't feel like imposters, so we don't feel like you know we're lucky to be a part of this industry, that we genuinely have a legitimate place each and every one of us who works in this industry, no matter our uh, race, class, creed, religion, uh, gender, um, sexual orientation, we all have something to contribute. And the one thing that's amazing about the fashion industry is it's this a really powerful, visible, global, cultural force. We have all of the tools available. We have people like you, really articulate, smart leaders who can, can, can help guide the way and hopefully people's ears and eyes have been opened uh, as a result of this conversation. So thank you. Thank you to all of you for joining. I'm really, really grateful for your time. I want to conclude just by saying our heartfelt condolences are with the victims of the attack last week in Georgia, but also over the last year in the U.S. I mean, this has got to stop. And um, I hope that, you know, we as an industry can do our part in educating and informing uh, the wider community in fashion and beyond on these important topics. Thank you, Emron, for just uh, letting us share our stories. It's that's exactly what we need to do. Thank you. Bye. If you're not yet a BOF professional member, podcast listeners can benefit from a 25% discount on your first year of an annual membership using the code PODCASTPRO. That's podcast P-R-O. BOF podcast is edited and produced by Venetia Van Horn Alcama, Kate Vartan, and Kevin Bobby Blanco in the BOF studio team. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 